Okay. So that we can get through everything, let's go ahead and get started again. I'm going to assume, since our population just about doubled, that there's a lot of people out there with insect problems and disease problems and weed problems. <laughs> we're not quite to that yet. We're going to get to it. So if you'll be patient, we're just finishing up some biology. But we will get to the, the, the other subject real quick. Okay, did anybody need anything off the fungi slide? Okay, the next one up is just uh, protozoa, which includes ciliates, amoeba, and flagellates. And they, they're the ones that eat the fungi and the, and the bacteria, releasing the nitrogen and some other compounds in the, in the organic form uh, that then the plant can take up. And that's what I was talking about, where the, the plant dumps the exudates early at a, at a heavy rate to build that bank account that's going to be needed later on for them to... And about the time the plant needs it, about the time the plant needs it is when these protozoa and, and uh, we'll look at uh, some arthropods are going to be making that available. That process is going to be coming to that point where it's all of a sudden being made available to the, to the plants. Then we have nematodes. They're saprophytic nematodes. Again, they're breaking down um, organic matter. You've got predators who are eating other nematodes um, or other organisms. And then there's parasitic nematodes that attack the plant. Now, there, there's parasitic organisms in every one of these. There's parasitic fungi, there's parasitic bacteria I didn't put on there. I just put the, the key ones. Most of these organisms, when you create better conditions in the soil, are no longer parasitic. They have a food source other than the, than the host plant. And so they're no longer going to attack the plant or they diminish. Another thing that happens in a healthy soil is most of these um, parasitic organisms, pathogenic organisms, are deformed organisms. And they're weaker than healthy, beneficial organisms. And in a healthier environment, they get consumed. They, they get destroyed, which we're going to get to in just a minute. OK, and then you have arthropods, the different arthropods. Um, I put, don't put names for all of those creatures. They're kind of, it's kind of a funny looking crowd. There's shredders there that shred. In order to eat the bacteria off of leaves and stuff like that, they shred the leaf up, getting to the bacteria, and then it makes it into smaller pieces that are easier to break down even further. And of course, there's predators here. They're eating, they're eating um, bacteria and fungi and other soil organisms. And then, of course, they're releasing the, uh, the surplus nutrients that come out of that into the soil profile where the roots pick it up to grow from. And this is my favorite slide. This is earthworms. From some of the stuff you read about earthworms, you'd think they could save the world. <laughs> um, they're recyclers. Uh, do you like this species, by the way? Um, this, is a, this is a trick picture, by the way. I used it last year. To, I, I put it in there to, to, to help illustrate to people that sometimes you can be convinced of things that are just not true. Just by the by the, the uh, respect for the authority or something like that, and they throw something in and, and, uh, and you believe it. Uh, I don't know of any earthworm species this big anyway. We had some pretty giant night crawlers in our yard in Pennsylvania under a mulberry tree. They love mulberries. And uh, we had earthworm castings everywhere. We'd go out in the morning and all them, they'd be all up on the surface there and they'd be about that long. And they, I'm not kidding, they were about that big around. But I don't think they're anywhere close to that. Um, they're recyclers, so they're, they're, they're recycling organic matter. They increase nutrient availability. Now, there's some cute confusion on this. They increase nutrient availability. They don't balance the soil. So they'll make more available, going through the gut of an earthworm, it'll make more available the, the nutrients that are there, but it won't balance it out anymore. And some people confuse those things. And they also pr improve soil structure through the castings that they produce and the, and the, the gums and the glues that are produced. One of the interesting things, remember I said that um, pathogenic organisms are, are deformed organisms. And so back, I'll just give you the illustration with bacteria. Pathogenic bacteria tend to be bloated. They have, to have a weaker cell wall. And so when they go through the, when the health beneficial bacteria and the pathogenic bacteria go through the gut of the earthworm, the pathogenic ones who have bloated uh, cells are popped and killed in the process, and the beneficial bacteria go on through and, and uh, are preserved. 
So in a healthy, you'll see in a healthy system, a lot of things get taken care of that uh, otherwise wouldn't be, would have to have external interventions to, uh, to deal with them. And this is the book, I have it in the box up here, my, my famous box up here that we haven't got to yet. <laughs> uh, I have a copy of that in the box. This was written by Dr. Elaine Ingham for the USDA. It's a great primer on, on soil biology. It's, it's, it's not too complicated, but it's sufficient for you to really get a good grasp and understanding of the... Of the Elaine Ingham, but it's, it's published by the USDA. And she did this for them when she was still working at uh, Oregon State. Um, she did this primer for her. Okay, any questions? Yes, ma'am. It is, they're coming and eating those arthropods. They're eating and, our... But yeah, they're going to eat your... Right, because there's not enough of those others there yet. This is another hazard of the Back to Eden approach. Is he, uh, again... No, we're not using the bark or anything. It's just right. that, uh, like, uh, hate, you know? Uh-huh. So right. You can have voles, moles, stuff like that. It, it, it's, a, it's a hiding place for them. You can even have rodents. That's why when they say to put mulch around trees, for example, to leave it back away from the tr trunk of the tree because they'll come up under the mulch and eat the, the, so the tree. They just like the environment. Okay, so now we're going to discuss insects, diseases, and weeds. And like I said, based on the an increase in population in the room, uh, everybody a lot of people have an issue with this and a lot of contentions are made about about this I will tell you straight up that if you change the conditions in the soil and when those conditions are brought to the place that they belong your insect disease and weed pressure will go away okay um, now a lot of people disagree with me on that but I've, I've had that condition in myself personally I was on a 7,000-acre farm, so as some of you heard, I was on a 7,000-acre farm in southeast Missouri that's been working with uh, complete and balanced fertility for quite a few years now. They have no disease pressure. They don't have to spray anything for any diseases on that farm. They only have pockets of pest pressure, minor pest pressure, but, you know, if you've got 7,000 acres, you're going to have some variability in the soil conditions, and so they haven't got the complexity up in all of those areas yet sufficiently to... To, um, to eliminate that totally. Um, and their weed pressure, because they've changed the chemistry and changed the conditions in the soil, weeds, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to weeds in, in just a second. And you'll see why it goes away. Okay, this is a chart from Advancing EcoAg. And do you have a question? So the bugs aren't interested in healthy plants? Bugs are not interested. Bugs cannot eat healthy plants. And you'll, when we talk, we'll, you'll see, we're going to talk about that. Um, they, cannot, they cannot eat them. And so they need, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. Let's, let's work our way down here. This, this is a chart that was done by Advancing EcoAg. Advancing EcoAg up in Ohio was started by John Kempf, an Amish farmer. Um, very sharp person. If you go onto their website, they have a lot of podcasts that start dealing with um, key concepts. And, and you can learn an awful lot off, off of their site. But the, I put this chart on because it, it, we, we can work through what happens, the process that happens that eliminates these problems for you. Now, when I say eliminate, you can have minor pressure, but actually it's, studies have shown is that if there's a little bit of stress on a plant, it actually improves its growth and its yield. So there doesn't have to be total elimination but I can tell you that in some cases there is just total elimination, and there's reasons why there's total elimination, which we'll talk about. Okay, so the title is Optimal Nutrition Enables Advanced Function in Plants. And I'll read it because it's kind of small here, so people are not, especially in the back, are not going to be able to see it. It says, as soils and crops transition toward biological farming practices, they pass through stages of increasingly better health. 
The progression towards better health restores the natural and biological abilities of the plant and the soil system. Innate characteristics and advanced functions are enabled, such as immunity to soil and airborne pathogens, resistance to insects, production of lipids which strengthen cell membranes for tastier, more storable fruit, and more. And so we're going to go to the bottom of this pyramid now, and we're going to see how you eliminate these problems. If you have disease and insect problems, it's because of the conditions you have. You have incomplete, imbalanced fertility. You have poor porosity or capillarity in the soil. And so you're, you're creating conditions that are going to create issues in the plant that are going to be favorable to these organisms. And I'm actually going to give you some illustrations of, of, what, of organisms that are considered pathogens who actually become beneficial or are actually beneficial to the plant under certain conditions and are destructive to the plant under others. Okay, so at the bottom it says, if we wish to produce food as medicine, this is where the medicine is. Okay, number one, and I may have to get it, I'll have to read it off, I think. No, I have to read it over there. Successful, the number one thing that the plant needs to achieve is successful photosynthesis. And I'll have to reach over here to see this. Formation of complete, complex carbohydrates, such as pectins and other polysaccharides, which build resistance to soil-borne fungal pathogens, such as Fusarium, Alternaria, and Verticillium. When you have full photosynthesis, full potential photosynthesis going on, you're producing higher levels of lipids, which allows the plant to build thicker cell walls. And if you have proper mineralization, you have proper levels of calcium and silicon and those things, and potassium built into the cell walls. And so these pathogenic organisms, the way they get access into the plant is they exude a, a, a compound that dissolves the cell wall. But if the cell wall is built thick enough and there's enough calcium there, calcium actually neutralizes that, that chemical. And so they can't, they can't gain access to the, to the um, inside of the cell. And what they're going after is they're going after simple compounds. They want simple sugars. They want simple amino acids. They, don't want, they, they can't consume complex compounds. And so that's what they're going to go after. And they wouldn't even be doing that, but they can smell them there. They can tell it's there, and they're wanting to go after it. Uh, some of these organisms actually become beneficial to the plant if their food source is, is provided to them which remember I said that God, that everything has a food source, and if it's provided to it, then it behaves in a benign and giving fashion rather than a hostile and taking fashion. And most of these organisms, if the plant is, is dumping those exudates into the soil and not out onto the leaf, um, it's feeding them. And so they don't need access, and those are usually simple compounds, and so it doesn't need access to the in internal part of the plant because it's getting fed externally to it, so it doesn't need it. And so the behavior changes. It's no longer a pathogenic behavior, but a, but a probiotic behavior, a benign behavior that, that takes place. So that's your first level. And so that's going to take care of a lot of your disease organisms. They're going to be excluded or, and or, or both. They're going to be fed. And so they're not going to want, ac or need, want or need access into the plant anymore after that. Okay. Level number two, production of complete proteins. This is the next level that the plant has to take. It has to have the resources to take amino acids that it's built and rapidly build it into complete proteins. A lot of these organisms we're going to look at on the next level here cannot digest protein. They need amino acids. They cannot break down protein. And so if those amino acids in the tissue of the plant are rapidly built into complete proteins, they cannot eat it. What happens when they consume it is it breaks down into ammonia and it kills them. They cannot digest complex sugars. They can't break the sugars down. And what happens if they try to eat it is it breaks down into um, alcohol and kills them. And they're smart enough, while people sometimes may not be smarter, they're smart enough to know what's good for them and what's not. And so if the plant has all of the enzyme systems going, which means it has the the, the complement of minerals that are necessary to run those enzyme systems, and the hormone systems are right, giving the right signals there, and those proteins, all the resources are coming together and rapidly being built into, into complete proteins and complex sugars. Um, 
you will resistance to aphids, white flies, and larval insects such as cabbage earworm, alfalfa weevil, weevil, tomato hornworm, and a lot of the other caterpillar um, uh, family, and many others. Yeah, a problem with that will be uh, eliminated, largely eliminated, because they cannot eat the food source. And if they try to eat the food source, it's going to kill them. And again, they want simpler compounds. They can access those compounds via the leaf surface if the plant is exuding those things out on the leaf surface. They can access them through the soil if they're soil-borne soil organisms. Uh, some of these, like let's look at aphids, for example. Aphids are going after free nitrate, where you've got nitrate uptake, and a lot of times you'll see them up in the growing tip. The reason they're up in the growing tip is because the nitrate is moving to the growing tip where their most rapid growth is going, but it's not being built into amino acids and proteins rapidly enough. There's not enough other resources coming in to complete the process, and you're getting an accumulation of, of nitrates up in, that, up in that growing tip. Or if you have it throughout the plant, it's going to be that you just have a lot of free nitrate in the plant, and that's what they're coming after. You'll see issues like uh, if any of you grow berries, and the issues they're having with spotted wing drosophila now, that, that female spotted wing drosophila is not even going to lay the eggs there if it doesn't believe that there's going to be simple compounds there for those larvae to eat when they're born. They're laid there because there's, there's a pretty strong indicator that there's going to be adequate, adequate food source there for them. So if you elevate the complexity again, that's how the problem is going to be eliminated. It's not going to be eliminated by sprays and, and all of that. Remember what we talked about when we talked about environmental influences? You're not going to keep them off your, your plants. You're not going to keep them away. Uh, this is a different organism, but out, out in California, uh, a walnut grower out there who uses complete and balanced fertility, uh, the, uh, the walnut cucurlio, which is a little uh, um, fly-like thing, I can't remember the specific term for it, it comes over and hangs out in his orchard, but it destroys his neighbor's orchard, his walnuts. And, but it does no, no destruction in his orchard. But it's a much nicer environment for... for uh, healthier environment to hang out in. And so, but it would go into the, into the nut, get into the nut and lay the larva in the nut on the neighboring orchards because they didn't have the same conditions. And, and of course, they're going after the simple compounds again, the simple foods. And uh, of course, the neighbor got mad at him and, and they were, the state forced him to spray his own trees because the, because the organisms were hanging out there. <laughs> so... But he had no damage, no damage to his walnuts from that. They weren't there to, to eat his walnuts. They were there because it was a better, healthier environment to, to, to hang out in. But they made him spray anyway to kill him on it. Okay, so that's the next level, complexity. You get plenty of energy produced. That energy, uh, coupled with, with mineralization, proper, complete and balanced mineralization, allows for all of those compounds to be built into complexity rapidly, so you don't have a lot of simple compounds floating around. What do simple compounds do to us? What do simple compounds in our diet invite? Disease. Right. Because those organisms thrive on simple compounds. If you want to eliminate a lot of that problem, just stop eating a lot of simple compounds. Okay, number three. Storage of surplus energy. My apologies, I'm going to have to go over here closer because the sunlight is kind of making it. Energy is stored in the form of lipids. Does everybody know what lipids are? They're fats. Uh, energy is stored in the form of lipids, fats, and oils. Lipids build strong cell membranes for increased resistance to all airborne pathogens, past parasites, disease, and UV radiation. So over here on the side you'll see you get, now get resistance to downy mildew, powdery mildew, late blight, and others as well. Bacterial invaders such as fire blight, scab, rust, bacterial speck, and bacterial spot, just to name a few. These are all airborne uh, fungal um, pathogens and, and uh, viruses. They no longer, the, 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 with the fats, the cell wall is built thicker, it's built stronger, and they can't penetrate it. All of their attempts at neutralizing the cell wall integrity are neutralized. And uh, a lot of times they're not even attracted 
to the, we had a, I was telling uh, the class earlier, we had a, a summer squash. We, we grow up on strings, we grow intensively, and the summer squash was 10 feet tall. And it hadn't lost a leaf yet. We were into November, cold, damp. We were into November, and it was just the beginning of November. It first started to show a little bit of uh, downy and powdery mildew on the bottom leaves. We hadn't lost a leaf on that plant yet. But it was, it was green and beautiful from the top to the bottom. Uh, and it, it had inherent immunity to these, these uh, pathogens. They couldn't penetrate and do any damage. All of, these, all of these, by the way, research has been done on these. Well, I'll grab scabs. Anybody grow apples? Well, the, 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 the organism that causes scab, there's research that looks at, there's, there's a buildup of the, the amino acid arginine in the tissue. And it has a connection, and I'm not sure completely, they know completely, but in all the apple trees that, that uh, succumb to scab, they have elevated accumulated levels of arginine in the tissue. So what's happening here is somewhere in the manufacturing process, some of the components are missing. And so you wind up getting a, the plant's making the arginine, but it's not getting built into the proteins that it needs to be built into. You get an accumulation, and now you have an attraction for a simple compound from an organism, and it results in scab. So if you want to avoid scab, make sure that your sulfur levels are hot. Or, uh, optimum and that sulfur levels because it's some of the it's some of the sulfur containing protein or amino acids that are causing a problem in there it's not the only thing but you need the whole balanced picture but most people are, are not getting enough sulfur was there a question back there? it kind of looks like a scab <laughs> on the on the leaf in the apple it, well, it gets onto the apple too. It's not really, it's not really black. Um, there's some other, there's some other bacterial and fungal infections that look like that. I don't, honestly, I don't expend a lot of time researching all of the problems because you could spend your whole time trying to understand all the problems. I, my focus is on how do I eliminate the problem by, by dealing with the causes that are, are leading to those problems. So. I can't honestly answer your question which one you're talking about. Scab is not really a black. It's more of a scabby looking appearance on the, on the, on the fruit and on the leaves. It, yeah, you can, you, that's a good, it was just pointed out to me and that's a good point. You know, actually folks, you have access to information beyond what you can imagine. Just go on the internet and type in scab, apple scab and you can get some pictures of it and see if that's what you're, t you're talking about. Um, but there's tremendous resources that uh, you can tap into. But I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, some of this stuff gets obscured because it's, it, you know, they want to focus on what interventions, um, external interventions you can do to try to kill it. There is no ex intervention that works real well on scab. Most of the time they tell you to just cut that part of the tree off and Hope it doesn't spread to the hope it doesn't spread to the rest of the tree. Uh, most of the, a lot of the times you wind up having to cut the whole tree off eventually because it once it gets in there and if that if it gets spread into the tree, then uh, the tree can be done for. But I will tell you also that sick sick organisms, if you'll give them a restored condition, will from the inside out take care of the problem and, and recover. Uh, I remember uh, it's a, it was a, a big old pecan tree. It's in Texas. Uh, I remember uh, somebody illustrating, and it was dying. That you know, have you ever seen a tree where most of the branches are dead and a few of them are uh, still got some leaves on them and everything? It kind of looked like that. It was a big old tree, 100 years old, and everything. They're really hoping to to uh, to save it. And so they augered down around the tree. They augered holes down around the tree. They made a, a compost tea rich in nutrition and everything. And and um, carbon energy compounds and they ran it down into these holes and to see the pictures just the restored nutrition to that tree to look at the pictures just a few months later the tree had all leafed out again and and was, was growing and thriving again the solution is to go after the cause and, and correct the cause because like I said the, the 
the number of problems are, are limitless. I mean, they're just endless, and you can spend a ton of time trying to trying to sort those all out. What intervention are you going to do for this? And what entry? And believe me, if you are in agriculture, you'll be spending a fortune too trying to fight off all fight off all of these problems. What I promote is fostering life, not fighting off death. And and that's what people tend to want to do is fight off death rather than fostering life. I want to give you an illustration in this area of something that a lot of people, how many people grow tomatoes? How many people have ever had a problem with early blight? Early blight is caused by a fungal organism called Altenaria. And it's a leaf dwelling organism. And it's on the leaf all the time. It's on the leaf all the time. And the plant is actually feeding it. The plant's actually ex putting exudates, photosynthetic exudates, sugars, energy compounds, uh, out onto the leaf and feeding that altenaria. And that altenaria is actually helping to protect the, protect the plant. So why all of a sudden does it start doing damage to the plant? Well, a plant first grows vegetatively. It develops what's called framing. So it's, it's, it's framing or developing vegetatively and then the, then the time comes to transition into re to, to reproduction. That's the mandate God gave them to bear fruit. Um, when that transition comes, now the plant needs all kinds of resources to produce fruit, to produce seed, but it also still has to maintain the plant, right? So if it doesn't have enough resources to maintain the plant and reproduce, the mandate is to reproduce. So the plant begins pulling resources out of the plant itself to provide for reproduction, to produce the fruit or the seed or whatever it is. When that happens, the plant stops, stops providing photosynthetic exudates out onto the leaf so that the altenaria is no longer fed any more energy compounds. And the leaf begins senescing or dying because resources are being pulled out of it to, to produce the fruit. When that happens, the signal is given that this is dying and now the altenaria um, knows that it's time to, to consume the leaf, to break down the leaf. And so that's when early blight hits. It's primarily a potassium deficiency that, that causes that to happen. There's not enough potassium to maintain the plant and reproduce. And so uh, there's some other factors, but primarily it's a potassium deficiency that causes that to happen. At the, that's why it's called early blight. That's what happens in the transition. Now we could go through you know, lots of different organisms and, and show what those relationships are. But I just want to use that one at this level because that's an illustration of, of what's happening and how the problem is just eliminated by, if the, if the plant's fully nourished, it, that'll never happen because the plant will maintain the, the, the plant itself and it'll do the reproduction and it'll have plenty of resources to do all that. And so the Altenaria still gets fed while the plant is doing the reproduction. And so you never have that change over to hostility or pathogenic behavior. And part of it is just that the, the organism's doing its job now. The plant itself is indicating it's dying because it's pulling the resources out of there because it didn't have enough to do both. Okay, level number four, production of plant secondary metabolites. The concept of press, press down and overflowing, a lot of you guys weren't in the class when we were doing carbon fertility, but in the process of carbon induction, it's when the plant is pressed down and overflowing. It's producing surplus energy. It has surplus resources because it's thriving. And then it takes those surplus resources, and we talked about how humus formation happens through carbon induction. Now we're going to talk about another level of immunity that the plant gets. You've heard of, uh, well, PSMs, is the plant secondary metabolites, act as plant protectants to guard against ultraviolet radiation, disease, and insect attacks. Um, these, these compounds are, are essential oils, they're, they're uh, aromatics that the plant produces from the surplus photosynthate, the surplus fats, the lipids that are produced. Uh, and also over here we'll look at it. The production of phytoalexins in stage four, which are these essential oils that come in different names. Uh, a lot of it's like bioflavonoids and a lot of the, 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 protecti the protectants like lycopene and uh, anthocyanin and all these, these color pigments that are beneficial. Uh, these aromatic essential oil compounds, terpenes, phenolics, bioflavonoids, are natural plant protection compounds that contain pesticidal properties of their own. 
And over on the other side, it says resistance to cucumber beetles, Colorado potato beetles, and Japanese beetles, protection of advanced antifungal compounds and digestion inhibitors. It comes at this point when they get up there that they, if they eat on this, um, it makes them sick and they stop eating. When we got, when we out in Colorado, which the potato beetle is named after, Colorado potato beetle, when we got our, our soil up to this level so that the plants were functioning at this level, the potato beetles flew in and they flew out. And we never saw a potato beetle again for the rest of the, rest of the season. Uh, they flew in and said, this is making me sick to my stomach, and they flew out and they're gone. Now, one of the things he doesn't talk about here, we, like the Colorado tail, these are chewing insects as well. And what happens, uh, they have more sophisticated digestive systems. This is why when you get up to this level, this actually takes care of that, that, that issue. But the chewing insects, which some of these are, they chew the tissue, you get to it. When you, when you build the cell wall with adequate calcium and silicon in that cell wall, it actually literally wears the mandibles off. It wears their teeth off trying to chew through it. They have photographs of this, of grasshoppers and some other beetles and stuff that chew through. And their teeth, as you want to call it, their mandibles, but I just call it teeth so you can relate to it. Their teeth are just worn off. They can't eat anymore because they were trying to eat. So they never reproduce and they never, you know, they, they, you know that doesn't succeed either. And so, you, you get the immunity to the, the more sophisticated and chewing insects um, that do damage at that level. Yeah? Silicone, yeah. Now, we've talked about this a little bit in the class, but since there's so many other people in here, silicone is one of the most abundant elements on the planet. And an assumption is just made that it's always available. Cucurbits are silicon accumulators, rices, but if you grow squash, cucumbers, melons, watermelons, they have to have that silicon, and that's why they say mel watermelons grow better on sandy soil because you know there's more silicon to be had there. But because the biology is being destroyed by by uh, pesticides and and all kinds of other poisons that are being used in the environment, you're not getting the silicon availability that you used to get in the soil, and so it's so you're not getting adequate silicon up into the tissue. You can use potassium silicate, by the way, and, and spray on uh, if you don't have this level of, of function in your plants yet. You can spray it on to squash, cucumbers, melons. And if you look under a microscope, it looks like a bunch of glass shards just covering that entire plant. And it will protect that plant from a lot of the, like powdery mildew and downy mildew and those type of things. Um, and the reason you get poor melon growth or poor watermelon growth is because when those, when those fungal organisms start doing damage to the leaf and, and covering the leaf, they're not getting a good photosynthesis. And so you don't get the sugar production, this needed energy production to, to produce a sweet melon or, or, or a good watermelon. I had a question back there first. And then. Silicate. You can use diatomaceous earth. Diatomaceous earth is amorphous <laughs> silicon. Um, I a lot of times will add that in to my, my, tr my transplant mix that I'm going to grow seedlings in rather than have to spread it over the entire, entire field. But um, you can use amorphous silica and you can use potassium silicate. You can also use calcium silicate too, but potassium silicate is a little more available. It's, it's pretty expensive. It's like $150 for a 50-pound bag, but you don't use huge quantities of it. And if you if you... I could assure you that you would get $150 more production from the use of it. So, I know yeah. that Country Life also carries the diatomaceous earth in a bigger bag. Okay, so she's just saying that, that Country Life carries the, the 50 pound bags probably of diatomaceous earth. Okay. Diatomaceous earth. Yeah, just die to make sure. So, yeah. is it in general do you have an overall lack of silicon? Can you spread it throughout? Sure, you can use. I've used in my, my high tunnels and greenhouses, I've used potassium silicate just put into the ground. Even though it's expensive, the, 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 it's a high value crop. And so, you know, using some of that in the soil is, is uh, it, I easily return it. 
tenfold at least, sometimes a hundredfold, uh, just by, by having that silicon in the soil. It used to be more prolific. Okay, so you guys were probably thinking, well, I'm going to talk about these individual, these individual diseases and, uh, and pests and everything, but your solution is to change the conditions in the soil, and those conditions will change the condition in the plant, and when those conditions are changed, most of these problems that you're dealing with will go away. Now, I know a, few, a lot of people contend that that can't happen, but I think the Bible's pretty clear that as righteousness is, is uh, increased, that those problems are going to go away. They're going to they're fall away. So, and like I said, I've seen that firsthand with my own soil and with my own growing, and I know many, many other growers that have achieved this. Now, don't go out of here and think, oh, I'm going to go home and I'm going to start this process, put everything on, and all of a sudden everything's going to reach, you know, perfection in, in one season because that's not likely to happen. But if you have good information, you have a good model, and you know what to do, then you're going down the road. You're going to be going down the road at the highest speed you can to get to restore those conditions so that, so that you can thrive again. Um, so are there any questions on that? Now, I know a lot of you guys weren't in the whole, I, I've done 12, 12 classes, and I know that a lot of you didn't pick that up. So uh, it's going to be on audio verse. So if you guys want to go listen to the other presentations that built the foundation for this, uh, you, you're, it'll be available on audio verse. So I'm going to leave that part of it, the, the insects and diseases. Well, what's, yeah, we talked about porosity and different soil textures and everything. You can do that, but if you don't have the chemistry to, to maintain the structure of the soil, it's not going to help you a whole lot. And one of the things that uh, I shared was if the chemistry, if you have bad chemistry that makes the soil hard, sandy soils are worse than clay soils. Sandy soils can turn into cement if the magnesium levels are too high and the calcium levels are too low. And you will break soil probes, you'll break shovels, you'll break all kinds of things trying to get it into it. So you're, you're asking, can I bring a different texture in there and, and add it to what I have if I have a, a heavier textured soil or whatever. If you don't have the chemistry to because you wouldn't, well, if it's on a gardening scale, you might be able to bring enough in, but unless you have the chemistry, you're not going to get the structuring. And so it, it might help a little bit, but it's not, for the work and the effort you're going to do, you would be better off figuring out what the conditions in your soil are and, and then correcting that chemistry so that it structures for you. Because that structure will be, will be a long-term structure that'll last if you do that. You know, I have a lot of people ask me that question, but it, I, it, it doesn't, people have tried to do it, and really, when you add different size aggregates like that, different size soil particles, and you have bad chemistry, it's like, it's like making a concrete block. I mean, you're just adding the different sizes. It'll make it, you know, cement together a little bit better. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you brought a whole lot of it in. But remember, you're, you're dealing with 2 million pounds in a plow layer, and so you would which is possible that you could if you brought enough material in on a small area and put it in to the soil. But it's not going to improve, it's not really going to improve the porosity in your soil doing it that way. Not the way you think it's going to do it anyway. Was there another hand up back there? Yeah, can you, can we get, I mean, this is, I haven't been all the can I get a copy of that period somehow? Do you have any notes online or? Um, I have. You can, you can, I think they have, is it an advancing eco-ag? Uh, I had Google search, it's called the, what's it called? Soil something pyramid. Soil health pyramid? Soil health pyramid. Okay, he just found it online, so you can print it out there. I have a copy of it with me, I think, in the room. I don't have it here with me. But you can find it online as well. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we're going to look at weeds. And... There's even more contention in this area about whether you can successfully eliminate weeds. Why do we call them weeds? Because they're growing where we don't want them to grow. Does anybody ask the question of why they're growing there? And why they're out-competing our crop? 
diff different plants are, are more or less capable of extracting different nutrients out of the soil. So I'll give you an illustration of one maybe people have a problem with in their lawns all the time, dandelion. Why does dandelion start coming into your lawn and start taking over your lawn? Does anybody know? Well, the dandelion can mine calcium. It has a long taproot and it can extract, it can produce the, the organic acids necessary to, to extract calcium from the parent material of the soil. And the reason it's coming in and proliferating in your grass is because the calcium levels are too low in your soil. And it can thrive there because it can mine the calcium. So it can outcompete the grass because the grass doesn't have the capability that it does. And you could look at every, every weed. I should just pull one book out of this box because uh, there are several books written on weeds and what, why they're growing there. There are certain conditions that allow those weeds. Canada thistle, bindweed, if you have any of those. They're also calcium miners that can get through hard soil. Typically, it's low calcium soil and high magnesium, high potassium soils that are tight and plugged up, and these plants can grow there. Um, and you can go on down the list of different things. Uh, one of the cover crops we talked about earlier, buckwheat. Buckwheat can mine phosphate. And so if you, use, if you plant buckwheat, you're going get, to get phosphate. So these different plants, they can go after nutrients that are necessary to try to restore, to, to, be, to provide the nourishment they need, and that's why they're growing there. We call them a weed because uh, they're growing where we don't want them to. And I, before the class, this class started, I was talking to some folks here, so I'll just repeat this so you get an illustration of this. Um, th there was a cattle farm, and they had planted this bluegrass and, and clover pasture for the cows. And the water troughs were over near the barn on the one end of that field, and they had some corn that they, they didn't ha have enough help to ha harvest, and it didn't do real well anyway, so they didn't harvest it. And they opened a gate to the pasture out into the cornfield um, so that the cows could just go out there and eat it. And so the cows wouldn't eat the bluegrass and the, and the clover that was growing in the pasture. They went from the, from the barn straight through the pasture, out the gate, into the cornfield. And what do you think they were eating? Well, I'll tell you, they weren't eating the corn. They were eating the weeds growing in the cornfield. And the reason they were eating the weeds that were growing in the cornfield is because those weeds were mining and harvesting nutrients that were deficient in all the other plants growing there, including the bluegrass and the clover that was lush and beautiful looking. But sometimes animals are smarter than people. And they knew where the nutrition was, and so they went and ate the weeds. They ignored the corn, they ignored the bluegrass, and they ignored the clover, and they went, they went to the weeds, and they ate the weeds. So it's important to understand that the weeds are growing there because the conditions are favorable for them. And they're not favorable for the crops that you're trying to grow. They can't outcompete them. And uh, so the weeds come in and they, they choke things out. If you want to ch correct that, I'll, I'll give an illustration that I gave in one of the earlier classes, too, about Canada thistle and two ranches in Australia, two big 4,000-acre ranches in Australia. Both of them had major problems with Canada thistle. The one ranch decided that they were going to restore balance, mineral balance to their soil, and so they set about to do that. And within about four years, the Canada thistle just went away because the conditions weren't right for it to proliferate anymore. It just stopped growing. And the grass started growing better, and, and the, the other forbs that are in there, the clovers and stuff like that. The only thing dividing these two ranches was a fence. Okay? There wasn't any big wall that went 100 miles into the air or anything. There was, there, it was only a fence dividing them. So weed seed, and the other side, that ranch was still covered in thistle. And the, and the seeds, the thistle seeds, blew onto this other farm you know, all the time, and yet it didn't take root and grow because the conditions weren't such that it was going to grow. And so, again, it comes back to, which we've, we've emphasized all the way through here, it's the condition of the soil, and if you want it in biblical ter terms, via the parable of the sower, it's the condition of our character, it's the condition of our heart. If you change that to the conditions that you should have there, then the right things will grow there. And, the right thing, and you'll sow the deliberate seed you want to sow there, and the other... The other um, things that are growing there. And some of these, some of these have, have, have deformed into forms that are able to 
extract these nutrients more, more uh, efficiently. And so a lot of them wind up going away. When, when, you, uh, um, when you balance the soil out, a lot of these weed seeds, a lot of the seeds that are in the soil, and there's a million weed seeds per square foot of soil, by the way, a million per square foot, you'll never win that battle. But what happens when the soil balances out, the organisms in the soil, they're weaker, and the organisms in the soil start destroying those seeds. They start consuming them and, and, and destroying them. And so they start eliminating that problem for you. And the conditions are such now for the plants, the seeds that you sow there that you want to grow to grow. You still need to, these other plants like, these other plants like fertile ground. So you're going to go, you're going to need to go in there and you're going to need to cultivate, but then it's not going to come back. There's another phenomenon that we talked about that plant, what plants do when a, a seed germinates, it starts putting out hormones that will suppress the germination of other seeds. In an in a unhealthy soil, that effect lasts just a few days. It only lasts a few days. In a healthy soil, it lasts about four to six weeks, giving the plant the opportunity to, to suppress any other expression and grow up and canopy that soil and block out light and then it, can, it, it has control of, of the growth on that soil. So the causes are incomplete and or imbalanced mineralization. And I'll, there, there are books, there are at least three books I know on weeds and they have the indicators of what are the conditions that cause these weeds to grow. You can get those books, you can look at it, and you can learn from that if you want, because you can read those indicators and say, okay, this is what's going on in my soil, it's out of whack. Um, and there's, there's three good books, one is Weeds, When Weeds Talk, it's the book I have with me by Jay McCammon, there's Weeds, Guardians of the Soil from, I uh, can't remember the author now, but Weeds, Guardians of the Soil, and Weeds, Control Without Poisons by Charles Walters. It's a matter of changing the conditions. It's improper and, and imbalanced mineralization, and it's inappropriate porosity and our capillarity. In other words, you don't have the, 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 the soil can't breathe right. You're getting anaerobic conditions in the soil. When you get anaerobic conditions in the soil, does anybody have problems with with rhizome grasses like crabgrass and quackgrass and, and those type of things. Those type of grasses will thrive in a poorly structured soil where they put rhizomes up shallowly in the soil and, and spread out. And so if you get better porosity and capillarity is just the ability, when you have good porosity, water can move efficiently and stored water can be maximized in those type of conditions. Um, if you get better porosity, and, it, and it's also, uh, uh, condition of excessive iron in a lot of cases you can have high iron levels and not adequate uh, manganese levels to control the iron um, is why you get those. You change those conditions and you'll be able to eliminate that problem fairly easily. One of the ways you can eliminate it you know, for good is to just lay uh, ground cover over the top of it. It can't handle shade and it'll die. It'll die. So. But this is the way you, you permanently eliminate that pressure where you have, you know, it's going to want to grow, but it's not going to be able to compete if, if you have the right conditions. It's not going to be able to compete with the, the seeds you deliberately sowed there and the plants that you're deliberately trying to grow. So these are the causes for every weed problem that you have. They're the, right there are the causes. Yeah. Is that just a term, weed pressure? Is it or just or a... Is there some mechanics that go with From weed pressure? Well, it's just... The, the pressure part of it, it just means that the, the weeds are, are putting a lot of pressure on the crop you're growing because they're, they're competing for water, they're competing for nutrients, they're competing for sunlight, um, all of those things. And so that's what it means by pressure. It's just they're putting pressure on your crop to uh, competing with it. Okay, I don't, I don't mean to oversimplify this process, but that's as simple as it is. I mean, that, it is that simple that uh, now again, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna go out and start on this process and all of a sudden all your problems are gonna go away. You know, when you deal with growing, when you work with agriculture, you find out the real condition of sin. And you find out that the work that's involved to overcome it. There are no magic bullets. There are no magic compounds. There's only a restoring of the right character. 
restoring of the right conditions. And that those conditions, as they become more and more established, will take away these, these problems that you have. They're symptoms, they're effects, they're not causes. And so in order to eliminate, in order to change the effects, you've got to change the causes. Does somebody have a hand back there? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a tapestry of information that works together, and so you know, coming in. If any of you have come in on the tail end of it, uh, you're not going to see the what we talked about as far as establishing the right principles, and then establishing the right model, and then employing that model, and all the and looking at all the aspects of that model and what you're trying to do. Uh, if you don't have the right model, you'll never get there. The model always has its way. So, if you choose the wrong modeling and then you employ that. It doesn't care how sincere you are. It'll have its way. And so you want to be sure that you're, you're embracing the correct model uh, and employing it if you want to achieve the objectives that you want to have. And that's what we've talked about for the, for the 12, 12 hours, is uh, putting that, that all together. And I leave this for last because for the, the simple reason was, once you understand all those things, you can see what I'm talking about here is that this is what the, the results will be if you, engage, if you employ that correct model. And so the solution is proper soil construction, which is, means complete and balanced mineralization and appropriate porosity and capillarity, just the opposite of what I put on the, the previous slide. Um, do anybody, does anybody have any questions? I don't know where we are time-wise. We've got five minutes. So if, does anybody else have any more questions on this? Nutgrass? Um, I'm not quite sure on nutgrass, but yeah, I think I think nutgrass. There's there's some there's some uh, water issues with with nutgrass. Um, yeah, we can look it up and see if it's in the book here. But you, um, between these three books, you can about look up any any one of these grasses. And uh, what I do is because this is a big subject, and my brain can't handle all the all of the, um, the possibilities. And so what I usually do is if I'm working with a specific situation, I look it up and I see, okay, these are the conditions. And then I, I compare that with the soil test to see, okay, what is that telling me? And if it's consistent with what the, what those conditions, and I know, okay, this is gonna be taken care of by just correcting that problem. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.